announced? Well, let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and we're going to get started on our new series, Christianity Explained. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to get ourselves grounded with regard to the truth of your word, particularly as it relates to our responsibility to be those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to delight in this and that this opportunity that we have will be that which is, it not only encourages us, but it, it does literally empower us that we will feel equipped to be able to talk to people about Christ and then to take them through the fundamentals of what it means to follow Christ in a, in a way that will speak to hearts and minds. And so we ask your blessing upon our time as we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Christianity Explained, it's actually a little booklet. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the history of this book. Uh, Matt Tyler, our missionary uh, there in Bangkok, Thailand, uh, had uh, mentioned this book in one, the last time that he was here. And I talked to him a little bit about it. And it's a book that they've used with great success to take people through uh, the fundamental essentials of what's needed to be known about the gospel. Um, at the end of this time, I'm going to take us through those principles uh, from the book as I've read through the book. And at the end of the time, I'm praying that you'll be so delighted in this that you might pick up a copy or two of the book. It's a, a little book. It's actually available for free on a PDF. Uh, and that you will think about who could I take through this book. Uh, the book itself is a six-week uh, uh, lesson plan, a six-week series uh, through the gospel of Mark, identifying the very fundamental doctrines of the gospel. What do you need to know to be a true follower of Christ? And so it's going to set that all up. So now whether you're just getting these here and that you can kind of, as we go through these, you might remember these six steps and then you can use those in sharing with others. Or if you have the opportunity to actually take somebody through this little book, uh, it, it, we're just trying to provide that, uh, establish that groundwork for you. So, again, we'll make more of that available right now. We just want to encourage you with some of the principles that are going to be used. Uh, we're not actually starting the lesson today. We're just laying some background uh, for our study. And where I'd like to begin, and you'll need your, uh, 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 you'll need your Bibles eventually if you want to turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. We're going to read a rather large section of that. Um, but before we get there, I'm now I have words here. Let's see. Do, do you need to click in there so that I can actually move it ahead? Because I'm not getting any. if you turn it on. Well, we don't use this very often, so, you know. So I'm going to start with a verse. How many of you have heard John 3.16 before? Just a few of you. <clears throat> we read this verse all the time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And one of the things that I would like to point out about this verse, and I know many of you have heard this before, is that it tells us something about our God that we sometimes maybe 
we overlook, we, we think, oh, this is the most precious verse in the Bible. We want somebody to, to know this verse. Uh, there's seems like we run into very few people that haven't heard this verse. But what does it tell us about our God? And one thing it tells us about our God is that he's a missionary God. Our God sent a missionary to earth. Our God so loved humanity that he sent the greatest ambassador, the greatest missionary you could ever conceive, he sent him to this earth to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel to us. And so we see from this verse this heart of God to send good news to the people. Now, I'm always proclaiming this one verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul makes that extraordinary statement. He says, um, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. That's a profound statement, but if you just kind of, let's just follow it back just a little bit. Paul, who was perhaps the greatest missionary from a human perspective that we would know, those three missionary journeys, and he turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. He says, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. Well, what is he imitating? Well, part of what he's imitating is this desire to communicate the good news, the gospel of God, which is what Paul calls it in Romans 1, the gospel of God. And where did Jesus get that good news? Well, he gets it from God the Father. So God the Father is the originator of the gospel. It's called in Romans 1, the gospel of God. And Jesus Christ becomes the first missionary to bring that gospel for what is the very first words of his public ministry? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and Mark says, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. And so Jesus relays the gospel. Paul imitates Christ and relays the gospel. What does that mean for you and me? If we're going to imitate Paul, we need to be effective at communicating the gospel. Now, you think about Paul. Uh, how did Paul communicate the gospel? Did, did, what are some ways in which Paul communicated the gospel? Did he, did he do it in a stadium? He did some pretty big venues, didn't he? He proclaimed the gospel. Did he do it uh, in a synagogue? Yeah, did he, did he do it with a small group? Did he do it one-on-one? -on -one? And so we find Paul doing multiple ways of proclaiming uh, this message. And so we recognize that if we are going to follow the heart of God, who's a missionary God, who sent his son Jesus, who was a missionary Christ, who... Uh, influence Paul, who was a missionary man, that we should have that same kind of desire. And if that's not enough for you, of course, we have the um, the Great Commission, we call it, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Just ponder that for just a moment. He's Lord of all, right? And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I just want to point out, because sometimes we forget, and I know many of you are familiar, so just stirring you up by way of reminder. What's the main command in verse 19? Make disciples. It's not go. It's make disciples. It says, if we were to try to translate it 
wooden literally. It would be as you are going or wherever you go, in your goings, make disciples. doesn't matter where you go. You can go to Walmart. You can go to Maine. Go to, where'd you go, South Carolina? Uh, no, Virginia. Go across the street. Wherever, wherever you go, have this mindset. Make disciples, make learners, make followers of Jesus Christ. So the main command is, is right there, and we do that. As we do that, we want to see them baptized, and we want to make sure that we're teaching them all that Christ uh, has commanded. So now uh, we, we recognize in here that there's this call to evangelism, the call to spread the gospel, the good news. We're going to be talking about a lot next week, uh, hopefully, um, if I don't preach too long, about uh, what is the gospel. But the gospel is, is good news. And so uh, we're going to talk about preparing ourselves for evangelism. And to do that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And if you notice, this is a rather lengthy section. It's something that you are familiar with, of course, the woman at the well there in Samaria. But there are some things I'd like us to flesh out from this particular text, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. So please follow along and be blessed by the hearing of the word of the Lord. It's a long section, so I won't make you stand, but please hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have answered, you, had, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with who the one whom you now have is not your husband. This is this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When, when, that, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, the disciples came and were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city. They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39. From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with, with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So ends the reading of God's word, and I pray that we are blessed by it. What I'd like uh, us to consider from reading this particular text are some issues about preparing ourselves for evangelism. And the first thought that I'd share with you is that spiritual self-preparedness is everything. We need to be prepared to share. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. Now, I just want you to think about it. I read the entire story for you. And I want you to think about all of the reasons why Jesus could have said, eh, I don't think that I should share the gospel with this woman. I don't think I should be talking to this woman. Can you think of anything? I, I just, just want to hear what you might say. What, what could have been some of the reasons why Jesus could have said, uh, I don't think I'm going to share anything with her? Okay, she's Samaritan. And we just read in the text that uh, we'll, we'll go over these, so you don't have to write them down because we're going to go over these. But she's a Samaritan. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. She's a woman, and Jesus is a rabbi. That's, like, not kosher, okay? Think of any other reasons? Okay, just the, the social aspect of it, right? She had five husbands, and the guy that she was living with wasn't a husband at all, 
And why would Jesus want to associate himself with someone so immoral? Can you think of any other reasons? Those are all good reasons. The very first one, the most base one, we'll we'll get there. Uh, Yes. Well, well, let's think about this real quickly. Let me just give you some reasons why Jesus might have come up with. Jesus could have said, here are some reasons why I don't need to be speaking to the woman at the well. All right. And the first one we see in verse six. And, And tell me if this is not true. Do we not use this one? He was tired. He was hot, thirsty, and hungry. How do we know he's hungry? Disciples left to go get food. How do we know he's thirsty? Give me a drink. Why do we know he's tired? Because he sat. He had had been walking. He's sitting. He's waiting. Uh, Maybe we're making an assumption that he's hot. But now tell me, how many times do we use that? Oh, I would share with this person. I I shared the gospel with this person. I talked to them about Christ, but I'm I'm tired. I've got some physical things going on with myself that this really exempts me from speaking to this person about Christ. I remember uh, last year, uh, you all know, we did uh, uh, preparation for our Katy Trail bike ride. And so we uh, went up, and we were going to do 20 miles out and 20 miles back, first time ever on a gravel uh, course, and and we just wanted to get a feel for it. So we thought we can do 40 miles. And up to that point, we hadn't done a lot of long rides. Well, we got out on the ride, and some of you have heard the story. We got out, and we were feeling really good after 20 miles. So we just kept riding. We got almost to Boonsville. We didn't realize how close we were actually to Boonsville. We hit the 34-mile mark, and it really did dawn on me at that point. If I went 34 miles out, I got to go 34 miles back. And we were starting to run low on water. We didn't bring food and water for uh, that long of a bike ride because that's about a four-hour bike ride-ish. And so uh, we start riding back, and, uh, I mean, it was hot. Uh, We were out in the afternoon. We intended to be back earlier. Uh, we ran out of water a couple of times. You know, I started uh, feeling kind of dizzy and such, and we found a one place where I'm just drenching my wife in water, trying to cool her off. And I didn't know that. I really, I thought, we're not going to make it. One of us is going down. There's nobody out here because they're all smart. We're dumb. We're riding out here. And uh, we slowly get our way back to town. We're like the last eight miles. We're out of water. I'm parched. And we're just trying to get back to the Katy Depot in in Sedalia. And uh, we finally get there. We finally roll in. And I'm just trying to get to the water. Just get to the water. And I'm a little bit out in front of uh, of Laura. And I get to the water. And I'm trying to fill it up. And I'm trying to drink some water. And I'm pouring water all over myself. And this guy comes up to me. And he says, hey, can you help me with my bike? I'm having a little problem. And in my, I said, dude, I just finished 68 miles. I think I might die. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Wow, that's a long way. And he left me alone. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, and I'm not here to judge whether I should have had, I, I don't think I could have gotten a coherent word out other than I think I'm going to die. And that scared him. So, but we all come up with excuses, don't we? I mean, that would have been a great opportunity. Yeah, let me help you. What have you been doing? Well, we've just finished 68 miles and we're, you know, and t- try to find a bridge. We're going to see bridges in just a moment here. But don't we come up with excuses? 
And Jesus didn't use the excuse of being hot or tired or hungry or whatever else that he he might have used. So uh, verse 6 tells us he was definitely tired and hot and thirsty and hungry. And so uh, what are some of the other reasons we said? Jesus um, did not really... Uh, did not readily have dealings with Samaritans, or Jews didn't. So here's a good Jew. The Samaritans, if you know anything about them, they're the half-breeds. They, they were part of the northern kingdom. You remember uh, after Solomon dies in 931 B.C., the kingdom split between uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam, and Jeroboam took ten tribes and went to the north, and they were wicked up north. They were like way wicked up north. They were only slightly less wicked in the south, but... And uh, God used the Assyrian Empire in 722 to come in. And uh, the way that the Assyrians did it, they didn't take a lot of people necessarily captive. They just brought their people in, and they started inbreeding with the, the northern kingdom. And so you got these half-breeds called, that's what the Jews called them, half-breeds called Samaritans, half Assyrian, half, half uh, Jewish people. Well, then the pure Jews of the south, what did they do? Ah. Uh, you're not real Jews, and they didn't want to have dealings with them because of this. So that's a little bit of the background that was built into the culture. And so uh, we don't really associate with people like you. You gave up on the true worship of God. And so uh, Jesus could have said, sorry, you're only half, you're out. So he didn't do that. Uh, another thing, and I think it was brought up, Jesus, uh, Jesus knows Jesus knows the woman had a bad reputation. I mean, Jesus knows this. Been married five times. She's currently living with a man that's not her husband. And as a Jewish rabbi, what was he doing? He's running the risk of his own reputation. If people see me talking to you, they might assume something bad. Have you ever done that? I don't want to talk to this person. They look weird. If I'm talking to this weird person, what will other people think of me? must be weird I mean so uh, again these are reasons that Jesus could have used we use them a lot and then finally it was socially unacceptable for men and women to converse in public this idea that here's this this man talking to this woman one-on-one this is just something that uh, was not to be done and yet Jesus does speak to her why it's interesting, there's a little phrase back up at the beginning of this uh, chapter. If you look at verse 4, I want you to notice something in verse 4. So John 4, 4, it says, And he, Jesus, what does it say? Had to pass through Samaria. There is something that had to be accomplished in this, is this time. Jesus was prepared for whatever the Lord, uh, the Father God had brought into his way. And so, He was spiritually prepared. He's tired. He knows all of the cultural stigmas, but he's alert enough to take an opportunity regardless of the obstacles. And if we're going to do evangelism, if we're going to do what Jesus tells us to do, who do we belong to? Jesus, who are we slaves of? Jesus, what has he told you to do? Make disciples in wherever you go. That means we must be spiritually prepared for the task. And so... Spiritual, the spiritual preparation of ourselves is everything in personal uh, witnessing. Um, as individual believers, we need several types of preparedness. And, and I'm, I'm just having you kind of 
tell me the things that you already know. What do you think are ways that you can be prepared for evangelism? What do you think you need to do? Read your Bible, pray, have a testimony, yeah, yeah. be saved, <laughs> hard to witness if you're not saved, right, okay, memorize scripture, those are all, those are all good, and, and I'm not coming up with anything uh, new, you must be praying, you must be praying for opportunities, and, and again, I just challenge uh, even myself, are you praying daily, Lord, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the truth of Christ. It may just be a seed here. It may be a five-minute conversation there. It may be something that you start meeting with somebody over lunch for a week. But do you pray, and I, I have daily up here, do you pray moment by moment? Because I, I get myself into, I hardly ever darken the doors of a Walmart. I don't know why, I just... Uh, my wife takes care of that, or we have this thing, Walmart comes to us, right? Um, but uh, I remember uh, when I did go to Walmart, I was always like, okay, Lord, um, maybe there's somebody here. Somebody's, there's always somebody sitting by themselves, sitting there. Is it my turn? Start talking to them. See what happens. But you got to pray. And we know that. We got to pray. Uh, looking for opportunities. Uh we didn't actually mention this one. I don't think anybody specifically mentioned this one. But do you actually look for uh, opportunities uh, where you go to a place? And that's what it's kind of referring to with the Walmart um, thing. Uh, you know, when I go to a store, so I go to Lowe's or Home Depot, I'm a man on a mission. Okay? I have a list. I have one thing. I Go get LED light bulbs. Okay, so... I'm in the car, and it's a long trip from my house to Home Depot. I, car hardly gets warm, but I get there, and I, I'm like, okay, I know where the light bulbs are. I go in, I get the light bulbs, and I go to the self-checkout stand so I don't have to talk to anybody, and I'm back home in 10 minutes. But Jesus said, in your goings, make disciples. And so there's got to be, and I understand we all are pressed for time, but whose time is it? God's time. When I say I had to go to Home Depot for the lights, do I see that as because of me, that I'm on a mission, or is it because God may have a divine appointment for me? And am I looking for the opportunities? And I love this word, intentional. When you go someplace, are you intentional? Are you intentional to say, well, I'm here for me. I'm here for light bulbs. I'm here for groceries. I'm here for whatever it is. Or am I here by God's design and maybe there's something bigger than carrots, bigger than light bulbs that need to be taken care of? So we need to be looking for opportunities. So you pray for opportunities. Then you say, okay, God, give me the opportunity today. And then now I'm looking for the opportunities. And the last thing, and most of you mentioned this and you included a lot of good thoughts with that. We have to be equipped. We have to be equipped. We have to know what to do. We have to know what to say. What should we share? What shouldn't we share? What, what is important? What's not important? So we need to uh, be prepared, equipped. And so this study that we're going through is going to help us predominantly with this third aspect of being equipped to share the gospel. However, I can equip you. We can equip one another all day long. If you are not personally doing one and two, or the one and two up there, 
it doesn't matter how well we equip ourselves, we're not going to evangelize. So all three of these things are important. And so if we're not praying and looking for opportunities, then by and by we will not effectively communicate uh, the gospel. So are you spiritually preparing yourself? Not very hard, right, as far as it's easy. Pray, look, and be equipped. And most of you probably are doing some of those already. You can do better. And most of you are equipped enough to do stuff, but we can excel still more in our equipping. And so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to move ahead a little bit here and talk about the next second aspect. Not only do we want to be self-prepared, but we want to capitalize on casual opportunities. What, what strikes me about this book is that um, we, uh, we don't think about casual communication. We, we think of we got to get somebody to a revival. We got to get somebody to come to our church. We got to get somebody into our Bible study. We got to get somebody into this, uh, this uh, 13-week series or whatever it is. And so quite often, concerned Christians have good opportunities to speak personally to their friends on spiritual matters, but these opportunities often wither on the vine. They don't usually lead to an extended conversation about the gospel. This is what I want to encourage me and you to do. I want you to have opportunity, extended opportunities, to share the gospel. That's what you've been called to do. What did Jesus say? In your goings, make learners. So you want to not just, uh, we, you know, we talk about uh, having a testimony. And I've encouraged you, have a one-minute or a three-minute testimony of how you came to faith so that you can at least share that. But it shouldn't be that even if I get to share my three-minute testimony, yes, I'm done. The goal should be what? To move them to the next level, to talk to them about more things. You want to hook them in so that you can speak to them more about Jesus Christ. So uh, let's see how Jesus did this. How did Jesus capitalize on his opportunities with the woman at the well? Now I want you to notice in our text some, some interesting things. The initial conversation, who initiated the conversation? Jesus. What profound, deep spiritual words did he speak to the woman at the well? Give me a drink, right? I mean, it almost reads kind of, um, I, I don't know how to, I mean, demanding, right? Give me a drink, woman, give me a drink. I mean, it's just, it's just straightforward, it's there, but he starts the conversation in verse 7, give me a drink, but then notice in the text how he uses that as a bridge because, uh, again, in verse 7, he says, give me a drink, and then the woman says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then Jesus now uses this as a bridge in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, if somebody actually said that to you, what would, should be the next question? Who are you, right? If you knew who it was who was talking to you, well, who are you? Uh, you know, so she, he's trying to build this sense of uh, trying to get her to ask questions. She, she kind of misses that a little bit because he says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Verse 11, where, where then do you get that living water? So uh, she's sort of interested in all of this, and that leads us to 
uh, the next aspect, the, the woman's interest, where do I get this living water? I mean, it's kind of like the, uh, the old infomercials, right? The vacuum cleaner that cleans everything. You can clean your toilet with it. You can clean whatever with it. And the woman says, I got to have it. Where do you get this? But wait, there's more, all of that. Well, he got enough interest. So now Jesus uh, provides a, another bridge because now she's saying, where do I get this living water? And he's going to carry this conversation. This is just a big overview. He's going to carry this conversation to the point of verse 29. If you look, notice verse 29, where he says, uh, she now goes to the people in the city and says, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So he's got her interest peaked so much that now she's starting to bring others to ask these questions. I find that uh, very interesting. And then finally here on this one, his ministry to the townspeople provides another bridge for an unscheduled stay. I don't know if you caught that. Now, if, if you just read the story, it sounds like Jesus stops at a well. He's hot, he's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty. Disciples say what? Jesus, you're the leader, hang out here. We'll go in the town, it's a Samaritan place, we don't want you sullied. We'll go get some food and drink. Okay. Jesus sits there, and uh, uh, he ends up having this particular uh, conversation. Or excuse me, Jesus is sitting there, and what should have happened, according to the disciples, they come back, they say, here's your food and drink, they eat and drink, and then they're in Samaria. Jews don't want to be in Samaria, so then they would have headed south and gotten out of town as quickly as possible. That's that's the Jewish mindset. What happens? Jesus meets up with the Samaritan woman. He has this bridge. She speaks to speaks to him about spiritual matters. She gets interested. She goes and tells other people uh, about the spiritual things that are taking place. And now they come back and they say, hey, would you stick around for two days? That's an unscheduled visit. This is all because Jesus was spiritually prepared and he took a casual conversation about a drink of water and turned it into an opportunity to share the gospel with a woman and then the townspeople, right? Isn't that amazing? The casual conversation with the woman turned into an extended teaching opportunity. And you, if you are a Christian, and you, if you are going to obediently, in your goings, make disciples, need to be saying, okay, let me have a casual conversation, try to bridge the spiritual principle, and see if I can turn this into an opportunity to meet more often with this particular person and spend two days with them. How would that be, right? As stated before, if you are spiritually prepared and aware, quite often you will find yourself in a spiritual conversation. If you are going in, having prayed, looking for an opportunity, and you know, here are some things I could say, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have those opportunities if that's not happening in your life. And I think if we were to take a survey, maybe that doesn't happen as well, I could do it safely this way. How many of you would say that doesn't happen in my life as often as it should? Right? Well, then it might mean that we're not praying enough, we're not looking enough, and we're not equipped. I don't want to say we're not equipped enough, but we need to know what we have in our arsenal. And so we're going to deal with those particular things. And so our study is going to provide us with some tools how to capitalize on those opportunities. And we need uh, to remember that spiritual self-preparedness is everything. We must be uh, prepared if we're going to do this. Now, I'd like you to think about what we just read from John chapter 4, and I would like to uh, ask a few questions. If you look at verses 31 through 34 
I'd like to ask this question. What is the food Jesus says he has to eat in this passage? What is the food that Jesus said he has to eat in this passage? What's that? I'm here. To do the will of God. To do the will of God. In verse 34, notice specifically how it says it in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Are believers sent? Where we keep going back to Matthew 28, 20, right? In your goings, do what? Make disciples. You've been sent. You are sent out. And what is your food? To do the will of him who sent you. And what is that? To preach the truth about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 38, uh, 35 through 38. Notice what it says here. I this do you not say there are yet four months and then comes harvest behold so hey pay attention i say to you i I love this look at me everybody look at me everybody looking now what does he say lift up your eyes really consider this and consider the fields and they are what they are ripe for harvest, but we're not speaking about grain, are we? What are we talking about? People are coming, the souls of men and women. Do you believe that the field is ripe for harvest? Jesus makes these kinds of statements. He says in Matthew 11 as well, the fields are white, are ready, but we don't have enough what, did Jesus say in Matthew 11? There's not enough workers There's not enough people praying, looking, and equipped to go and reap from the field. Verses 39-42. Why did Jesus stay an unscheduled two extra days with the Samaritans? Why did Jesus stay an extra two days? So again, we we look... uh, There in verse 40, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. That was an unscheduled visit. The disciples weren't expecting this. Why would he stay for two days? What's that? Many more more to believe. What were they going to believe? The harvest was plentiful. What would Jesus be talking to them about? The good news. For two days, he speaks to them of the good news. I'm just trying to get my head wrapped around this. I'm called to, in my goings, make disciples, make learners, and I want to do it. I want to do it in the the microwave uh, way. I want to do it in the drive-through, quick, just throw the food out the window and hope they get it and move on. Jesus proceeds slowly. We're going to talk about a principle of evangelism that I think is important for our culture right now, and that is Jesus didn't rush it. He didn't think, I'm just going to drop a bomb, a gospel bomb, and hope that it takes root here. He did bring something up spiritual that piqued an interest in a person, and then he just kept working it and working it, and it lasted for two days. That may not seem like a long time, but, I mean, Jesus would have been spending the whole day with these folks 
uh, trying to work through this. Now, one last thing in this uh, little study here. Now, by the way, we can call that hit-and-run evangelism, all right? Hit-and-run. It's called one-off evangelism, too. We're just, I'm going to say something uh, off one time, and then that's going to be what leads people to Christ. Give me a break. All right? Well, let's, uh, let's do something. You're going to have to look at your Bibles there. And I want you to notice the assessment that these folks have of Jesus. Okay? I need you to look at verse 19, verse 29, and verse 42. And I want you to tell me what, what kind of progression. How is Jesus perceived first in verse 19? He's a prophet. That's pretty cool. Maybe he's a prophet. Okay, verse 29, how is he perceived? This, could this be the, the Christ? Is that a step up? We've moved from prophet to Christ, the anointed one, the promised one of God. And now in verse 42, where do we end up with? What's the progression? He's the Savior. You see the progression? Jesus worked his way through. We're looking at uh, some spiritual principle. You're like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then you go a little bit deeper. It's like, wow, this is really impressive about what God's done and who God is. And then you get to the final analysis where it's God is truly God, and I'm truly not, and I need God to be in my life, and he provided Jesus Christ, so I need to to see my life given over to him. So you see uh, this kind of progression. So. We're going to uh, move along here, and we're going to look at another passage of Scripture that's pretty familiar, because this is one of those questions that you can ask. And again, we're not really, I'm not really providing you anything new here. I'm just trying to go over some principles that are the foundation of this study that we're going to look at. Uh, you probably have read Matthew 16, 13 through 17 before, right? Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so it's way up uh, in the north, part of Israel, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That was where the woman at the well was at, right? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And ultimately what I'd like to just glean from this particular passage is the question. What is the question? Who do you say that I am? Just a good man, a prophet, the Christ, the Savior, God of very God? Who do you say that I am? That's the ultimate question. And so uh, we'll probably not get past this one here. There's three principles that we'd like to share. We'll probably just deal with this one. And uh, this isn't going to be very flattering, but it's where we find ourselves as a culture. And that is that when you are thinking about evangelism, we have to start getting ourselves out of this mindset that people know anything about the Bible or know anything useful about Jesus Christ. We are in a post-Christian nation. Uh, we are in a, uh, uh, it's post-Christian, I mean, the, the post-modern is what I meant to say. Post-modern where everything's been challenged and, and uh, all of the, the 
people that used to get Bible stories from Sunday school classes, that just doesn't happen anymore, not to the extent that it did. Many traditional Christians, particularly in the Western world, have experienced the decline in church attendance in the last 20 years, and the decrease in attendance has led to a corresponding rise in the number of people who we have to identify at best are being nominal Christians. They are, they are Christians in name only. What is that? That would be a, a, a Chino. Chino? What? C-I-N-O. Christian in name only, right? Because we have rhinos and all of those things. So uh, there's, there are so many who call themselves Christians, but they have very little understanding of what the Christian gospel truly is. There, this may be illustrated from uh, the situation here in the United States. Uh, some stats here where only 40% of the population say that they are in a church, uh, in church on an average Sunday, although 80% claim to be Christian. So th- just those stats means half of the people that say they are Christians don't regularly attend church. Although this looks good on the outside, some people say, hey, you got 50% participation, right? Uh, many view this as bad figures. Uh, we also would suspect that a lot of people who say they go to church aren't really going to church. It's a survey, so how do you, how do you deal with all of that? Of course, being in church doesn't actually even guarantee anything, does it? Because it doesn't mean you're actually hearing good t- teaching. Yeah, I go to church, but what kind of teaching are you getting? Is it true gospel, biblical teaching so are they getting an understanding of the christian gospel compared with other western countries like the uk canada and australia the church attendance figures are are continually declining declining and they reveal a culture that is becoming less and less literate of what the bible actually says and so here's the issue we make the assumption that because people grow up knowing the language of christianity They actually have a real grasp on what the gospel is. I'm telling you, that's not true. I'm telling you that there are people in our own church that can really struggle with even how to articulate the gospel. I'm not saying that means necessarily they don't believe it, but that's a problem. That's not an equipped person. Uh, You know, I'm going to say this later on in one of the principles, but I I asked the question in our new members Uh, when we interview new members, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And you'd be surprised at how few people know how to answer that question. Again, some may know really the gospel, but they, they struggle with that. They may know the words of God. They may know the, the words God, faith, and repentance, but they have a clouded or mistaken view of what that actually means. And so, They don't know how to communicate the Christian message. So it is fatal to imagine that everybody you talk to knows well what Christianity is, and they only need this little nudge. Hey, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And we go, yippee. But they're Mormons, or they have a whacked out view of Jesus. It's not, do you believe in Jesus? It's, do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? What Jesus do you believe in? The brutal fact is that this Christian country, in this Christian country, perhaps fewer than 20 in 100, 20%, have the faintest notion of what the Bible teaches about God or man or society or sin or of the person of Jesus Christ. Probably much less. I read of a Christian minister who was talking to a group of students from a large college 
was talking to them about some of these things, and one of the female students piped in and said, excuse me, you keep using a word that I don't understand. So, of course, the, the, the Christian leader was like, oh, I'm be some theological term, something that is really, you know, that something I didn't define very well because he was using theological jargon. And he said, so what word is that? And she, with all seriousness, said God. A Christ, uh, college. And she didn't know what he meant by saying, using the word God. One writer has commented, quote, it is no longer the case of the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep safely in the fold while he looks for the one out in the hills. The 99 are scattered, lost on the hill, unquote. I've read of another person who was taking a, uh, a couple through the New Testament, and he said as they read through the New Testament, they were asking, they were asking him questions like, who is Peter? Who is David? These Pharisees, are they good, good or bad? And so these things that you and I take for granted, you can assume nothing. The, the, they are typical modern Western people. They are affluent. They are well-educated, but they are totally biblically illiterate. And we must not assume that who you're talking to knows what you're talking about. So what does this mean for evangelism? In the past, we could often assume that people had in their mind some kind of basic understanding of Jesus Christ and the Bible stories. The job of the evangelist or the preacher was simply to build on all of that. But that's no longer true. Our contention is that in evangelism today, that we must begin from the presupposition that the person that we are addressing knows virtually nothing about Jesus, the Bible, or the gospel. Because in the majority of cases, that will be true. You have to assume that they know virtually nothing. Now, this isn't to speak down to somebody. It's not to be condescending. Uh, as a result of the diminishing knowledge of God in our culture, uh, the crusade style of evangelism that some of us have seen is less and less effective. Not only is it harder to get people to actually go out to those kinds of events, but even when they do make commitments, those commitments seem to be they don't even have a clue as what they've committed themselves to. They just get wrapped up in the, in the excitement and the emotion. And so in this, this course that we're going to go through, the basic assumption is that the person you're talking to has little or no knowledge of Jesus Christ in any meaningful way. You should assume that whoever you're talking to may have never opened up the New Testament. They don't know what's in there. And again, this does not mean that you're going to treat that person like a child or in a patronizing way, it just means this. Do not assume prior knowledge. Uh, in one particular area, this biblical ignorance is chronic both inside and outside the church. I, I pray that you could ask people these things in our church and most of us would be able to answer them. But it is interesting that both inside and outside the church, the issue of salvation by grace alone and justification by faith are hard that people have a hard time articulating what that means. If you want to know what that means, come back for Romans for the next two years and we'll deal with it. Interesting, this one, uh, one author wrote that in a group of 11 adults, listen to this, in a group of 11 adults, all regular members of a reasonably vigorous church, are we a reasonably vigorous church? Think so? 11 
adults, regular members of a reasonably vigorous church, all 11 said that, quote, a Christian is a person who tries to live a good life according to the Ten Commandments, unquote, or some associated answer. Between them, they collectively had hundreds of years of church attendance and had listened to thousands of sermons and Bible readings, and yet they could not answer the question, what is justification by faith or salvation by grace alone? Can you? Pray that you can. But the problem is that those answers, that answer, a Christian, quote, a Christian is a person who tries to live a good life according to the Ten Commandments. That's not just a slight deviation. That's not just one or two degrees off of the truth. That is 180 degrees in the wrong direction that means that they don't have a concept of the gospel. And so a good rule of thumb is this. Assume the person you are talking to understands nothing of the gospel until they can tell you out of their own mouth what the gospel is. What does that imply then? There's that second point. Assume the person you are talking to understands nothing of the gospel until they can tell you out of their own mouth what the gospel is. What, what else has to be true if you're going to operate on that? Speak for a long time. You've got to know what the gospel is. You better make certain you know what it is because if they're going to regurgitate something to you, you better know that's right or that's wrong and then how to, to deal with that. And so our study here is based on the assumption that the person we're addressing is generally ignorant of who Jesus really is, the Bible and the gospel. Even if that person holds a responsible position in some church, don't assume it. Let them tell you. It's good to ask questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you understand a person to be saved? What is salvation by grace alone? What does it mean to be justified by faith? That's not just for theologians. That's not for just the pastors. That's for the church. You must know these things, and we're going to make certain that we all have those basic understandings so that we can be more effective at proclaiming the gospel. So, just like my first message this morning, I only got through one point of my three, okay? But assume nothing as you, and again, I, don't, I, I, I hope that it just does not come across as being talking down to someone. It's just in your head, you just say, I want these people to tell me I want to know what they know. I'm going to assume that they don't know until they tell me what they do know. And if they come up short, then I know what I need to, to communicate. Make sense? So we're going to close with that next week. Well, no, not next week. It'll be a couple of weeks now. We'll come back and we'll finish up this section on the preparation for the Christianity Explained, and then we'll get into the study proper. But uh, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together and uh, this exciting opportunity we have to be challenged on what it means to effectively communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we be a spiritually prepared people. God, stir our hearts to be praying more and to be looking deeper for those opportunities to share the gospel. Take what we already know about Christ so that we might share that with others. And then through our study, 
just broaden that, that tool base of ours so that we will be ready to share Christ in, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Give us wisdom to be able to take those casual conversations that we have with people nearly every day and seek to turn them into an opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ. So we thank you for what you'll do through the study, and we pray that you will help us to start practicing these things even now so that we might be effective at going and making disciples of all the nations. And we'll be careful to give you the praise, thanking you for all that you will accomplish. In Jesus' name.